think long COVID is real. It is a post-viral infectious syndrome, as we see with other viruses, most especially Epstein-Barr virus. But we still need to study it to see if there are unique features. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Bill and Fred, some interesting news over the week uh, passed uh, about the availability of a vaccine for children under five, and would love to get your perspectives on that. Well, I'm not completely sold on the vaccines for the little kids. And the reason is, it's because with these littlest kids, there is a very low, I wanna see a little bit more safety data. We know there is a low side effect rate, but there is also a low risk to these kids if they get infected. So until I know more about the side effect rate, which we'll know when they do their formal complete filings um, for the EUA request to the FDA, I'm not, in real enthusiastic yet. Maybe I will be. One thing I have been saying, though, is even if on a purely medical level, I'm not enthusiastic about it, we do know that these will decrease transmission. And if that means that families will be much more comfortable about getting back into life and getting their kids into school, doing the things they need to do, and that employees will be more comfortable going to work because they will not be terrified about bringing COVID home to their little kids who are not vaccinated. Well, in that setting, if you take it in total, I may be more comfortable with it. But from a purely medical and you know, from a medical ethics, what are we doing to the child standpoint? I want to see more data first. Bill, Bill has a good point. It, it, the, these young children do not get severely ill for the most part. But uh, I think we have to take the public health standpoint. Uh, this, as we know, this virus keeps, it's like the ever-ready battery. It keeps going and going and going. And until we achieve a high percentage of all the population vaccinated, we're not going to get the reproductive rate below one. And we know, and I have personal experience with this, that children in daycare are contracting the virus, then coming home, and then spreading it to everyone. And the, the spread of this virus is predominantly through households. 85% of all infections are through the household. So if a child is in a daycare center where one child is sick, not, they're not vaccinated, they will, get, they will pick up the virus, and often they will be asymptomatic, they will bring it home and the entire household will become infected and therefore the, the, the epidemic will continue on. So from a public health standpoint, I think it's very, very important that the children five and under become vaccinated. So let me, uh, maybe I can square the circle because I think you're both bringing up some very good points. Bill, I'm hearing you say that um, from a um, general safety standpoint, you'd like to see more data uh, for the population of five and under, recognizing obviously that, you know, the virus is still here. And Fred, what I'm hearing you say is that young children, particularly pre-K, nursery school, they can be asymptomatic carriers and bring the virus back to the household and it can spread from there. Just from a cost-benefit standpoint and as parents have to make decisions, doesn't that sort of suggest, at least for now, the imperative that everyone, you know, of an adult and young adult age 
vaccinated and boosted because the virus is around and the contagion is easily spread. And in terms of children who are five and under, let's continue to watch the data here. David, I, I think so. Okay, we're going to have it's going to be a couple more weeks, and there'll be data coming in that we don't have yet. So that's why I'm saying I'm not, um, I'm not opposed. I'm just slightly skeptical until we see all the data. The, the likelihood this is going to be extremely safe. First of all, they lowered the dose, uh, and uh, we've seen in those uh, above five to age twelve virtually no significant side effects. So it's proven to be that the safest population. There's every reason to believe that those under five will be similar to those from age uh, six to twelve. Have lowered the dose, but it's going to be a three. It looks like it's going to be a three-shot series, a three-shot basic series for the littlest kids, because the the smallest ones, um, as with some other vaccines, don't mount a, a great immune response initially. You have to hit them a couple times with it. And where are we in terms of regulatory? A review of the data and official pronouncements coming out of the uh, leading agencies. There is none. There, there have been lots of leaks that the the data, the application is going to go in by the end of the month. Um, there have been some preliminary data that's been released from studies, but the final won't be. We won't really see the hard data until Pfizer actually files its application, which they're saying will be by the end of the month. The other question, I know we addressed this, I think several, began to address it uh, several months ago, is the uh, long-term effects of COVID. And, you know, how is that being studied? What is the data showing? What are the ranges of uh, sort of, I'll call it insights around this? And um, it's interesting because, you know, survey social media to see what's out there. that references official sites like CDC and Johns Hopkins and the FDA. And, but there, there, there is certainly a lot of chatter about long-term implications here. Uh, what, what light can you shed on what we know and what we're likely to know in the future? Well, David, I think it's important to think of there's when people say long term effects of COVID, there's the, the medical effects that these are things that people had lung or blood vessel damage due to the actual infection. And those get managed as would any post-infectious organ damage. But that's not really what people are calling long COVID. The long COVID, the, the, the case definition is still being uh, massaged, but it's basically people who develop things like diffuse muscle aches, fatigue, sleep disturbances, brain fog, meaning they just not don't feel like they're thinking as clear as they normally would, and headaches. Um, it's really difficult to tease those apart, but this isn't really a new issue. The the healthcare the family docs, infectious disease docs, have been dealing with this for years, and many of them fell into the the category of what we'd call fibromyalgia. Um, and a lot of times, I, I, don't know, I was a, a resident junior staff. We, we almost, I feel bad now looking back because we'd almost blow these off as, oh, they don't really have anything. There's nothing there. But we do know more and more that these, that this fibromyalgia, that these post-viral infectious syndromes are real. Now, we don't know what causes them. 
We do know that there's things that can benefit, such as exercise programs, physical therapy, sleep, uh, some sleep therapies, um, all of these things. And sometimes even some med there are medications that can be useful, but we're still getting a handle on what this is. One of the things that frustrates me, though, is you'll see these articles that say, I just saw one this morning, up to 20% of children who have COVID develop long COVID. Well, that scares the hell out of people. And I don't think it's consistent with what we're seeing. So I, I just want to, I think long COVID is real. I think it is, it is a post-viral infectious syndrome, as we see with other viruses, most especially Epstein-Barr virus. Um, we've been dealing with this kind of thing for years, and I think we're going to end up dealing with it very much the way we have other post-viral infectious syndromes, but we still need to study it to see if there are unique features. Um, I'll, I'll get off my, <laughs> off my soapbox. I, I agree with Bill on all those points. And I actually, uh, there was a very nice study that just came out in Cell looking at risk factors uh, for long haul. And they have found four risk factors. First, the level of coronavirus RNA in the patient's blood. If they have severe disease with high levels in the blood, they're more likely to develop this disease. And if they, uh, uh, along that corollary, if, if an individual is treated with the antiviral remdesivir, theoretically that should reduce the RNA levels and reduce the risk of long-haul syndrome. The second is the development of autoantibodies. What happens with this virus, it stimulates the tremendous stimulation of the immune system. And some of those immune reactions can result in antibodies directed against the individual's own tissues called autoantibodies. And that's what we see in diseases... Uh, like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. So uh, this makes sense. So the virus is actually stimulating, causing the immune system to uh, go wrong, to misdirect. The third factor is reactivation of EBV, uh, which Bill just mentioned. That, that seems to be associated with it. And EBV for a long time was theorized as the cause of fibromyalgia, but that is not proven to be the case. But reactivation of EBV seems to be uh, increase the risk of the long haul syndrome. And finally, those that have type 2 diabetes seem to be at higher risk for long haul syndrome. So we're, we're beginning to understand some of the factors that increase the risk. And certainly Americans, there are a high percentage of type 2 diabetics. And therefore, would be, you would see more in a country like the United States, where there is uh, uh, the metabolic syndrome, uh, high uh, basal metabolic indexes, BMIs, in other words, obesity, uh, and type 2 diabetes, uh, we're, we're really uh, at high risk for this syndrome. And when you guys say uh, that you know, it's being studied, what are the reliable sources of reference that people can go to sort of understand this? And also, who's actually looking at this and looking at it in an in a, uh, intelligent, data-driven way? Well, I think you just have to go to peer-reviewed journals. And uh, what I find is I learned about the article in Cell from the Washington Post, which cited that specific paper. I, I read what the Washington Post says, but then I go directly to the, the peer-reviewed journal. Um, the high-quality journals, Journal of Infectious Disease, Lancet Infectious Disease, uh, uh, the Journal of Clinical Infectious Disease, uh, the Annals of Internal Medicine, New England Journal, those are all, and they're all outstanding, very rigorously reviewed uh, journals where 
studies can only be published if they're the highest possible quality. So I think uh, are, a lot of our newspapers, are the reporters are going to those journals and citing them, and, and I think that's a valid uh, way to, to learn about it. Do not go to the internet and just search and then go to a, po- to a blog somewhere. You'll get yourself in big trouble and you'll get a lot of misinformation. So I think you've got to be careful of the blogosphere and talk show hosts and individuals uh, giving their individual anecdotal experience about it. Those are just not helpful and can lead to a lot of misunderstanding. Curious, uh, just to build on what you've said, Fred, um, in terms of on the ground, what you're seeing in the hospital right now that you help to lead. And I know, you know, in Florida, which is in some ways ground central for some of the political debates about vaccinations and mask wearing and social distancing, but um, what, what's the latest intelligence from, uh, from the ground? What I'm hearing from the organizations that I work with is that, in many cases, people are done with this, um, which I think is interesting. Going back to one thing that Fred said a few minutes ago, and I've, I've seen the same, the same data, is that 85% of cases of transmissions happen at home. Of those remaining 15% of cases, most of them are happening in um, uh, dense environments such as restaurants, especially bars. Um, those are the kinds of places that happen. What's important is even though so much of the um, angst and effort has been focused on the workplace, you know, other than if your workplace is a restaurant or a bar or that type of setting, but a general office-based workplace has not been a focal point for transmission. We have the we work. My organization, uh, World Clinic, works with a number of construction companies. The construction companies have had lots of cases. We've had very, very few cases with detailed case tracking that have been traced to the workplace. You know, these they're happening elsewhere. They're happening in homes and bars and restaurants, and then and then they come into the workplace with it, but they're not transmitting it there. So I think that's probably the biggest thing that I'm seeing. Um, and as the case rate continues to come down, we're going to see people continue even more so say, "I'm done with this." Fred, what are you seeing in the hospital? Yeah. Well, I agree uh, with Bill. And in the hospital, what I can tell you is with the Delta variant, 95% of the cases admitted to the hospital were not vaccinated. However, with the Omicron variant, only uh, 55% of the individuals were not vaccinated. In other words, all the other individuals that were hospitalized had at least one shot uh, actually, 25% had two shots, and actually 10 to 15% had the three shots. So what this tells you is you cannot depend strictly on the vaccine. And we really need to continue the other practices, uh, masks, avoiding closed spaces, and uh, Bill's exactly right, restaurants and bars where you have to take off your mask to drink or eat, they are the highest risk places uh, where most of the cases outside of the family are contracted. And I agree completely, the workplaces are turning out to be very, very safe because they are practicing all of these good infection control uh, uh, interventions. 
if you follow the science, you are much less likely to be infected. And you cannot just depend on the vaccine to get you through. That's not sufficient, particularly because of the Omicron. I'm going to be honest, though. I am not avoiding restaurants. Um, you know, I've, I am vaccinated. I am, I've had a booster. I'm not avoiding restaurants. Most of the ones I, I'm going to, I'm finding they are spacing things out pretty well. I'm not going to bars because I think that is such a high risk environment because everybody's right up in everybody's face in a bar typically. So um, uh, that's my that's been been my approach. Um, you know, and I think as we're seeing with with Omicron as the the risk per infection, which is an important distinction here, there's still a high risk of hospitalization because we're seeing such, you know, such high numbers in some places, although those are coming down. But the risk per infection of a bad outcome is pretty darn low. Um, and now we're starting to see case numbers come down. New York, for example, is back down to the levels that they were almost back down to where they were before Delta. Um, many places in the United States, the overall the overall level in the United States is down forty uh, percent over the last week. We're almost down to a hundred cases per hundred thousand per day. Now, a year ago, we would have said, "Oh my God, that's incredibly high." Um, but as we're coming down, it's it's feeling much better. As we stand right now, there is not a single state in the United States that has case rates that are up. Every single state has case rates that are down. And in fact, there are, you know, we're down to a couple of states are almost below that level of widespread, uh, uncontrolled community transmission. Bill, I, I agree with Bill, but one of the things that I'm concerned about is letting our guard down a little bit too early. I think if we wait a few, two, maybe two more weeks, we really, everywhere will be down. I think it'd be unfortunate for a number of people to get hospitalized because they assumed we were at a low risk. We are not right now at a low risk. 100 per 100,000 is still an infection out of control and uh, epidemic out of control. So I would wait just a little bit longer. I agree there is light at the end of the tunnel, however. I wanna thank both of you for the insights and obviously in advance for staying on top of data and the information that matters and uh, sharing your very, very wise uh, and sage advice. Until next time, thank you, Fred. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. <laughs>